0: welcome to Ticking stock with kelly mcmillan if the name sounds like a business show to you then you've got it all wrong kelly mcmillan is the principal of mcmillan fiberglass stocks and we'll talk about shooting for fun competition hunting and self-defense now here is your host kelly mcmillan
1: welcome to taking stock with kelly mcmillan i'm your host And for the next hour, we'll be discussing all things related to guns, shooting, hunting, and the firearms industry. I'm joined by by my co-host, Zev the Wolf Nadler, owner and operator of the Firearms Concierge and bestdronage.com.
0: Well, thank you for that, Kelly. Um, Very few people call me the wolf, but those who know my name Zev in Hebrew, means the wolf. Uh, They might understand why Zev Glock Technologies in uh, California is called that because their family name is Wolf, so they just went the other way. But thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I wanted to give a uh, a shout-out to our good friend Len Backus at longrangeshooting.com. Oh, excuse me, longrangehunting.com for all your long-range hunting and shooting needs to check out his website at longrangehunting.com.
1: Well, I want to uh, congratulate you, Zev. Uh, I know that your oldest daughter, shy uh, recently got married. Congratulations on that. Thank you. We're very, very happy. Not only is Shy one of the most beautiful young women I've ever met, she's uh, probably for her age, one of the most, uh, mature. And now I can actually say one of the most squared away young ladies I know because she married a Marine. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know what we f- how we feel about, uh, anyone associated with the Marines around here. So that, that's a really cool thing. And, and I'm sure you're really proud. I am. Thank you. And your youngest daughter, Savan has been, uh, progressing nicely in, uh, her shooting, uh, shooting small bore. Um, Tell us about that.
0: Well, she's in the uh, NRA Junior Small Bore Program over at the Ben Avery Shooting Facility as run by the Arizona State Rifle and Pistol Association. Um, Our friend, Noble Hathaway, has done a great job at putting together a lot of events for, for kids, but also for adults. And uh, she's really taken well to the Anschutz 22. Um, she's at that point now where she's got to give up the pillow and kind of hold it up with her own arm. And so we're hitting the gym and doing some curls, and I think she'll get there quick.
1: Yeah, and how old is she? She's 13. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great age to start shooting. And there is no reason why she can't be a really competitive shooter with uh, you know enough time at the range and some good coaching. Thank you I agree Well I'd like to uh, have all of our listeners um, acknowledge our, our next guest one of the, the greatest knife makers in America today, uh, a guy that uh, I've really become fairly close with uh, as a friend uh, terrific guy. Um, I just the fact that he's a, a former marine uh, has something to do with it but not exclusively. Uh, I want to welcome Greg Medford of Medford Knives with us here today. Hey now. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Good. Thanks for being here.
2: Appreciate it. I yeah, appreciate you having me.
1: Well, I know there's more to you than just knife making. So um, give me a, a little bit of background, uh, history, start uh, where you grew up, um, you know, how you came to be the Greg Medford I've, I've come to know.
2: Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, I'm a local Arizona boy. I was I was raised, you know, 32nd Shea and when it was the edge of town, <laughs> you could practically motorcycle from our house out to the desert. And um, I guess it's kind of weird. You know, it's funny. I, I saw a meme on Facebook yesterday, and it was talking about the states rated rated for freedom. And it, ra- it rated Arizona number two in the country for freedom. So I've got this kind of kooky, you know, like almost like uh, magma. My magma froze or solidified here in this, this uh, kind of liberty-oriented place. So, you know, Marine Corps, college, back east, bi coastal family and all that. And I, I end up, uh, I end up, it all ends up kind of hanging on this tree of freedom that's at my core. And I didn't even know it was really that way till, you know, till maybe I was 40. And then all of a sudden, all of these things started really kind of gelling with me. And it was like, uh, you know, you hear all these little bits about freedom and liberty and all of these things. And they're kind of passing phrases. and But they all started sticking and hanging on my tree. And it, it seemed to me like it was all about this kind of tree of liberty that, that I was cast in me here.
1: Well, that's one of the things that I want to talk about. But I want to go back a little bit. I want to get a little bit more detail about um, how you come to think the Marine Corps was the right path for you and, and talk about the mindset and, and what that did for you and, and you know, how that kind of molded who you are.
2: Well, I'm like kind of a freak as far as uh, Marine Marines go. Um, I, I, think, I, I think I remember back on it way more romantically than it really was. So the a, a healthy human denial blocks out all of the parts that drove me crazy. Um, I knew as soon as I was in the Marine Corps, it was the wrong place for me. Uh, I knew that I needed to be in a free, open, competitive meritocracy kind of environment. And I, I just didn't know what that meant quite yet. I was too young. Um, you know, I was in the infantry. What made me go in was I wanted to be a fighter pilot since I was a baby, but I was kind of living out my dad's, that was more my dad's dream than it was mine. But it was the wrong time to do it. The drawdown that happened as I was coming of flying age really kind of precluded the real easy transition that way. I mean, I had a contract to go fly for the Marine Corps and it was my shot to lose. Gulf War popped up. I dropped out of college so that I could. Get pressed back into an enlisted program, and I went with a, a uh, infantry battalion and deployed to Desert Storm with the First Battalion, Fifth Marines. But what got me there really was my cousin, uh, who had been a Marine of the Year, and uh, I just kind of looked around at the recruiters that I saw, and uh, I mean the Marines were just squared away, and the guys, you know, you, I heard something funny the funny the other day. This guy said he had went he had gone and talked to the Navy, and the Navy said. We'll give you this much money if you sign up now, and and we'll do this for you, and we'll do that for you. And he went to the Army, and the Army said, oh, we'll send you to college. We'll do this, and you get the GI Bill and get that. And he, he went to uh, he went to the Air Force, and the Air Force said, oh, we'll get you this training. We'll get you this, and that, and the other. And he went to the Marine Corps, and he asked the same question. Well, you know, what do I get for this? And the guy leans forward, and he goes, you get the privilege of being a Marine. <laughs> and he went and joined the army but uh that i fell for it hook line sinker i mean it conked me in the head and i was like okay when do i get my dress blues you know
1: we had a guest on not too long ago um colonel Fre- freddie blish who basically said the same thing that he, he was in a, a school that basically was a military school and he could tell the difference between the the guys that were in the Marine program uh, uh, apart from all the other programs, they just carried themselves differently. And it was something that he aspired to right away. So, you know, that would, that the fact that you say that, you know, the Marines that you dealt with or that you saw were squared away, you know, I think that that's a, a common thread.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we're, you're an adolescent male and you're kind of trying to find your way in the world. Right. And, uh, you know, you could, take the road where everyone's going off to college. Uh, and then you see these guys, uh, you know, you, I didn't aspire to grow up to be a, can I see candy ass on here? You can. I didn't aspire to grow up and be a candy ass. You know, my dad r- raised me that way. We, we shot guns, raced motorcycles, and, you know, adventured. So the idea of me shuffling off to college with what everybody else was doing, it just didn't sit right with me. So I see these guys and, uh, you know, it's no knock, but it was it was the nature of things. I, the Marines, they were in fantastic shape they they just had a different there was a different air about them and uh, you know it's no knock like you know if my boy asked me right now i, I might recommend he go army so he could go for the sf route because i think it's a more intelligent path for a smart guy that wants to bear down on the enemy but if you don't know that and you don't have somebody who's kind of behind the scenes has got a lot of connections in the military and can kind of steer you where it fits you and you're just face value taking the branches you know these guys look like badasses they, you know I was like I didn't want to be a I didn't want to work in it I didn't want to work in an office I didn't want to do all these things and
0: that's that's kind of how it happened now Greg uh, I know you you've been a lifelong martial artist and wh- one of my questions is when you went into the Marine Corps had you already been involved in that and how did that work in McMap
2: well McMap didn't exist when I was in the Marine Corps oh okay what was going you know that was all part of uh, a reaction to the urbanization of America. And this whole reality we have now where kids get kicked out of school for having a scuffle. So when I was, when I went in the military, guys still, we'd all been in fights in school and everybody had been in fist fights and everybody had been in a big rumble down at a park near school. No, you know, nobody does that anymore. I don't think except for like the bad, the bad parts of inner cities. Right. So, so they had to come up with all of this because they got all these guys showing up who've never had their nose pushed in their face before. So, I, I, we didn't really confront that. I mean, everybody was immediately ready to fight when I was in the Marine Corps. It was crazy. Like, any given time.
1: You mentioned uh, you wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Did you have flight experience before you went in the Marine Corps?
2: Just from my father. Okay. Yeah, and my father had been a private pilot and uh, and had done that recreationally. And I, I took to it, and he had sent me up with an instructor when I was like 10 years old, and I was already kind of flying around his little tail dragger. But, uh you know, I just thought it was the thing that I should do, and I thought it would be great to go get some combat action and be in the infantry and be a Mustang officer because I'd read all the World War II books, and I figured you just if you're just a you know swinging with the wing, we say in the Marine Corps, you just go college, OCS, basic school, flight school. You're 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 just a shiny officer flying an air conditioned aircraft around, and, and and that's totally cool. Total respect for that, but there was some air of. Um, Kind of awesomeness for Mustang officers, guys who'd been enlisted, kind of knew the blue collar part of the Marine Corps also, and had made that transition over leadership. You know, I wanted to be a part of that cadre.
1: So I know flying is still a, a part of your life. Um, why don't you tell our listeners um, what you've done in the air? Just give them some background.
2: Well, I, uh, f- you know, when I got back from the Gulf War, we had like a week of debrief. On, uh, at Camp Lejeune, and uh, I went out and rented a car. I went to uh, wherever the Azalea Festival is out in uh, North, North Carolina or South, I think it was North Carolina. Anyway, um, I went. To, they had an air show going. Blue Angels were flying, and uh, it kind of brought me back full circle to my childhood. And uh, I don't know if you remember, back in like 82, the Blue Angels flew here at Deer Valley Airport. So my dad helped organize that, so I got to be around that when that happened. So something kind of jettis- jettisoned me through time back to my childhood. And uh, I, I went out and I don't know what happened. I back to school, a couple years of school, back and then out here to Phoenix. And I went to the Scottsdale Air Fest, and I saw a guy with an airplane that I liked, and I bought one on the internet the next day my wife thought I was issues. I can't believe my wife didn't leave me. She was like, so you saw an airplane? No. I was like, yep. She says, well, where, where are you going to get that from? I go, well, it's in China, but I can get it on the internet. And she said, <laughs> she says, oh, okay. So, <laughs> so it, I didn't have my pilot's license or anything. So I got the airplane back and started restoring the airplane while I was started getting my pilot's license. Then I ended up bringing in like six, 16 of those airplanes and various other aircraft from Europe and Asia. And then, uh, you know, uh, pretty much every rating you can get flying airplanes. And then I flew air shows. And um, I did it for different reasons than other people. I did it because I enjoyed the adventure of it. I didn't do it because I liked shining my ass, they say, and flying. I, it wasn't like showing off. I enjoyed doing a really graceful kind of World War II style show. So that's that's kind of what I did for
0: several years. Yeah, and, but some of that is the uh, the surface level air show stunt pilot.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, so, you know, and the reason you want to be a surface-level performer is you get paid a little bit more. <laughs> um, but uh, you're down in front of the crowd, and everyone can see you. And, and, and it's, it's kind of crazy. Like, I could tell you air show stories all day, and, and, and I wasn't really even that big into it. I've got friends who are really into it. But uh, I remember I got cleared in, you know, uh, uh, Yak-9 Alpha Golf. That was my tail number. Yak-9 Alpha Golf, the airfield's yours. Well, it's Edwards Air Force Base. You know, I'm at 4,000 feet doing rolls down to the runway, one of the most hallowed runways on planet Earth, right? Jaeger's sitting there in the crowd. He's going to fly in a little while. And here I am rolling down to the runway. And I've got all of Edwards Air Force Base. Just, it's all mine. And I can basically break all the rules of aviation. And it's cleared. They're like, you have a box, do whatever you want. And so that was kind of, you know, that's kind of awesome.
1: I can see the, the attraction for you for that. And you mentioned Chuck Yeager. Um I call Chuck a friend, and he's. Uh, I met him back in the mid '80s when he was um, a representative for Weatherby, and we were making Weatherby Fibermark stocks for them. It was basically that particular contract for us was what what really established McMillan in, in the fiberglass stock business because they were the, the company that took a chance of uh, putting our product on on their rifles and selling them as part of their their line of, of fine you know bolt action rifles. But uh, Chuck, I, I, I loved the comment that, that we had in a conversation. I said, Chuck, what was it that made you such a great fighter pilot? And he said, really, matter-of-factly, no bragging, no nothing. He said, I could see them before they could see me. Mm -hmm. And his his eyesight, last time I saw him, I know he was well into his 80s and uh, still not wearing glasses. So I I don't know that his eyesight is as good as it used to be, but it's still good enough he doesn't have to wear glasses
2: all the time. So that was really amazing to me. I've got some funny Chuck Yeager stories. I've had a couple of really funny interactions with him. One of them was a flying interaction, but um, I read his book when I was a kid. And, uh, I can't remember, I can't remember what book it was and what year it was, but guys, you know, I did a lot of, uh, ACM, you know, air, 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 uh, combative maneuvering and, and, and a lot of multi-aircraft engagement training. Okay. And, uh, I always had an advantage cause I could, I got 2013 vision, so I could generally see stuff, but he had a trick. He didn't wear glasses when he flew because he thought it. You know, clearly in those years of World War II, the the optics weren't what they are now, but he thought it impaired your natural acuity. And the other thing he did is he'd put his thumb up to the sun. And by blocking out that, even if you're looking over to your right and the sun's to your left, he'd put his thumb up and block the orb of the sun. And it changes the contrast, and you could spot airplanes quicker. So I used Jaeger tricks, like, you know, all the time when I was flying. It was pretty funny
1: that's uh, awesome so do you still fly
2: no i haven't been flying much my dad's dragging me back into it you know i'm one of those guys i do something really hot and heavy until i'm done and then when i'm done i just mic drop and kind of walk away and go do my next thing
1: well one thing that i was uh interested to hear you talk about was you bringing all these airplanes in. So obviously you've been an entrepreneur from day one. Um, you said that the Marine Corps didn't really fit that mindset for you. And that's, that's why, uh, you got out and, and you started on your own path. Uh, I can relate to that. You know, I've, I've had, I don't know, seven, eight, nine businesses, uh, over uh, my career, but, um, it's just something that i think people that have that desire to do something zev and i are working on a project right now that uh, <laughs> my daughter laughed at me yesterday when i told her about it for the first time she says why are you doing that and, and i don't have a good reason for it except that i think it's a great product and it's going to it's going to be a good product when we get get the design work done but um, so y- what kind of airplane was it i'm
2: curious these were Chang cj6s they were cold war trainers for the uh Asian, uh, the, the, the Chinese version of the MiG-21 fish bed.
1: And that was not what you used for aerobatics.
2: It was actually, I, I flew air shows in that for several years. And then, uh, I got one of Pink Floyd's old airplanes, one of, uh, uh, David Gilmore's, uh, airplanes that had been belly landed over in Britain. So in England, if you belly land an aircraft in and it needs airframe repair and it's, factory built in another country and you don't have engineering you can't rebuild it good old socialist leftist governance so somehow or another i got this airplane for pennies on the dollar and got it here and i restored it at uh, deer valley here
0: i've seen a couple mig looking uh jets over parked in deer valley are those yours or no no
2: um so there was a guy named ivan oddly enough who had uh <laughs> Um, uh, MiG-17, and then they had a bunch of uh, L-39 Albatross uh, trainers, mm-hmm. a pointy-looking thing, made by Aero vodahodi over in uh, Romania.
1: Okay, We could talk all day about uh, that kind of stuff. It's really interesting. I grew up on an Air Force base, so I saw a lot of aerobatics, saw, saw a lot of um, you know team um, competitions and uh, demonstrations. Uh, the Thunderbirds, you know, Which that was base? the uh Sacramento and Mather, we were at Lowry oh, yeah. in uh, Denver uh, and my father retired from Kirtland Air Force Base in in Albuquerque but um, we just had a guest on uh, not too long ago that uh, whose daughter is uh, um, a skydive uh Team, what's an? Do you remember the name of the teams? I, I, I is it remember.
2: army or is it army, navy? Army. Is, is that, that's not the Golden Knights. Is yes, it? yes, she's yeah. a
1: member of the Golden Knights. Right. Um, which is, you know, for this that's family. cool. And I don't know if you know them, but uh, you know, you you tend towards the knife side of the, the firearms industry. But um, yeah, these uh, this family is one of the most celebrated. Competitive rifle shooting families, there is, and so there's something that drives them to be just a little bit better, in order for one of their daughters to be one of the Golden Knights. You know, that's and, that cool. just doesn't, you don't fall into that,
2: and it's just not for everybody. And that's Dude Country, yes, So <laughs> for a girl to come in there, it's yeah. pretty awesome.
1: Well, Nancy, who uh, her mother is, is one of the the best high power shooters in the country regardless of sex. And, you know, we are always proud of the fact that um, in competition shooting, women can compete side by side with men and win. So it's not something that uh, is male-dominated.
2: You know, the irony is lost on a lot of America, but gun-toting right-wing type folks who have their women out shooting have more egalitarian, probably a more undercurrent of egalitarian equality than than almost anybody in America. I mean <laughs> it's just the irony's not lost on me that you know uh if you're if you're conservative or if you're kind of right-wing there there's this uh the, the left paints us as, uh, you know, diminutive women and uh, subservient women and all that. And I just don't find that to be the case. No, far from it.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Um, let's talk about Medford Knives. That's why sure. you're here. That's, you know, you're No, connection. I'm here to support you. No, well, but I'm, I'm here to give you an opportunity to talk about Medford Knives and, and let our listeners know a little bit more about what you do and, and why you're different. Uh, how'd you get in the
2: business? Uh, you know, I got in the business six years ago on a lark because when the economy crashed in '08, I had some karate schools and I was doing air shows and everything. I you, you mean, we're, you guys are locals. It was This was one of the worst places in the country because we've got that really volatile real estate market that's been this way since I was a kid. I mean, we've seen it fluctuate four or five times pretty hard. But, um, I was doing martial arts and air shows. And when what happened nationally happened in 08, nobody needed air show pilots and nobody needed to do martial arts. Not really. So I was left holding the bag and I'd been kind of, I honestly had been kind of doping off at the wheel as a man. I was making enough money to get by and hang out with my wife and my family, but I wasn't clawing to get ahead. And, um, when that happened, it was kind of godsend. It kicked me, it kind of kicked me in the ass to get out of my comfort zone and go do something else. So I, what I knew about was I knew about you. I knew about Mike Dillon. I knew about, um, Joe Moriarty over at total seal. I I knew about Billy boat. I knew, I knew these guys who own companies around here and I'd had tours at their facilities and I saw the way they, their life was. And I said, I want my life like that. They were, creating their own reality around them. They had a lot of people as part of their team. They were raising up the community around them by creating jobs and people going to school and buying houses and cars and motorcycles and all the stuff that employees do. And then they were also getting their product, their ideas out to the world. And they were not limited by the thing that had hamstrung me, which was being so locally oriented. As a... As a my consumer base was so locally oriented, so I, I just um, I decided that um, I wanted to go into some kind of manufacturing, so I could at least reach out to the globe. And I said, all I have to do is find a million people, and this is a big planet. If I could find one million people, I'm gonna have a successful company. That's all I have to do. A million people out of the whole planet, I can do that. Anybody can do that. I could make uh, I, I could make purple underwear, and I could find a million people who buy purple underwear. So, uh, and then I, I made this huge spreadsheet and I started going through everything in life, all things that are made. And then I rated all those things. I mean, it was thousands of items. And then I rated each one for if just my own spit in the wind take, do Americans care if it's made in America? Coolness factor. Do, um, no, America's, oh, do, do, okay. do Americans care if it's made here? And then I looked at it and said, "Which one can I do 12 hours a day for the next 20 years every single day and be obsessed with?" And I, and I ended up falling on knives. And it, it came down to aircraft parts, airframe parts, firearms stuff and, and knives. And by the time I, um, by the time I uh, looked at the government oversight and all of that stuff and litigiousness of each industry, I just the knives was a
0: natural. You yeah, know, Greg, I'm happy you're here because I uh, received this uh, <laughs> neck knife from you. I received this neck knife from you at the George Washington birthday party this year, and I wear it every day. Cool. This is my last piece of defense here, and I just love it. So I'm actually showing it to Greg here in our studio, and I'm I'm really happy about it. Cool. So Glad you, you like
1: product.
2: it. Glad you like it. Uh,
1: So give us an idea what kind
0: of knives Medford
1: Knives makes, um, how the customers can take a look at uh, that. Uh, Give us your website.
2: Yeah, it's medfordknife.com. Medford like Medford, Oregon, and K-N-I-F-E, no V, no S. (laughs) And, 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 you know, so the knives, it's funny, you know, as I've been around knives, and I used to do, when I taught martial arts, it was the same thing. You, You could tell about a human being by how they train. So you see somebody do martial arts. If I see somebody do martial arts, I could tell you about, a whole lot about them. Like I got to know a lot of married couples that did martial arts and people were the same way in their marriage. They were in their martial art and knives really reflect the makers. Um, and so for me, I'm a blunt guy that doesn't have time for a lot of fluff and that's the way my knives are. They're, you know, they're mechanically elegant. They're very simple. Uh, they're meant to be rugged and, uh, they're meant to not need lots of maintenance. And I don't go crazy with adornment. I'm really big on, you know, uh, fit uh, fit and functionality and kind of blending form and function as an overarching guideline as opposed to style.
1: How many um, employees do you have? We have about 25 right now. So you're not an insignificant uh, player in this game. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of knife makers out there, and when you go to the shot show, you'll see you know, bench after bench full of knives. Um, but, but you've really taken a different approach.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a weird blend of technology and handmade. Um, you know, There's lots of full automated mechanization that's pushed into the knife business because it's such a labor-intensive product. And I kind of went the other way, so I'm trying to blend old-fashioned, old-fashioned craftsmanship, where human beings' hands and eyes meet the product, with the undercurrent of technology that does all of the holes and consistency of functionality.
1: These are serious knives, so you know they're not the bottom of the the line cost-wise. Yeah. Uh, people are going to have to pay for a, a a well-made, handcrafted piece of equipment yeah. uh, when they they buy a Medford knife, but I'm I'm sure, like McMillan, Medford Knife is is kind of the 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 state of the art for that type of manufacture.
2: You know, you know what it is. It's it's a it's a different relationship. It's the relationship of a non disposable world where a man gets used to his tools or or a woman and wants them for a lifetime and doesn't want to call up and say, Oh, we don't have that anymore. We'll send you the new cheap thing from China. It's a it's one of follow through and relationship and commitment.
1: Well, that makes me real proud. I I love the fact that McMillan is completely 100% made in America. I know Medford Knives are, and that means a lot to you. That was actually one of your uh, reasons for you starting the business. And, and, you know, the fact that you're one of the most patriotic guys I know is also what uh, I think brings me to you I, I you know I find that very attractive uh, and you don't just talk about it you do things that involve other people and trying to get them uh, the George Washington birthday uh, for example is getting a bunch of guys together to talk about you know how this country uh, and George Washington in particular um, has a special place in in Americans hearts and if it if he doesn't he should and and we need to you know, let people know about that i really appreciate you uh doing that because you know not everybody's willing to do that
2: you know so much of our my product line and my whole life story is just about letting people know and if people don't know they don't get it they have wrong opinions because they let hollywood tell them what to think the more you know if you know about hunting in africa and how it funds conservation you're pro hunting but if you don't know you want to save the akuna matata lion because you think that's better for africa and you're wrong. They're just wrong. And if you don't know why a knife costs $700, you need to learn because these are your neighbors and your countrymen getting insurance, getting workman's comp, not polluting the environment. You need to know what the hidden reality is so that when we spend our dollar, which I think is the only real vote anymore, you're buying something and you know what it stands for.
1: Well, uh. You know, I hate this time of the show because we're out of time. I really want to thank you for being on the show today, Greg. Thanks for coming in. It's been awesome. I definitely want to have you back. I also want to ask our listeners to stand by while we take a short commercial break. We'll be right back with our next guest. All right. Thanks for having me.
3: Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, Call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. your internet flagship station for sports, Voice
0: America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. I want to thank all our
1: listeners for standing by through the short break. Uh, We're back now. Man, that was a great interview. I'm I really have a lot of respect for Greg. I have a lot of respect for his products, but, you know, he's he's so much more than just a knife maker, and, and I've come to know him and uh, gotten pretty close with him, and uh, former Marine and Patriot extraordinaire. That, that's what I find really cool about him. Our next guest is uh, also a good friend of mine, somebody I've been able to call on and, and depend on for a number of things unrelated to uh our relationship our business relationship is uh which is as my taxidermist uh jim hartsock owns southwest wildlife taxidermy and i want to bring him on the show today and talk about uh a little bit about everything related to jim and his business and hunting jim thanks for being with us
4: well thanks for having me kelly
1: well, you know, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show, just simply because uh, we don't get a chance to spend a lot of time together. You're so busy, I, and, and that is definitely a good thing. Yeah, um, it definitely it, is. <laughs> you know, I remember the first time I went to Africa, and, uh, and I knew I was going to be coming home with about... Uh, Uh, half a dozen or more mounts, Uh, I talked to a number of people in the valley and said, well, you know, who who should I have do my taxidermy? Do I need to go with one of these big famous people I see at SCI or, you know, should I bring it, you know, have it done in, in Africa and shipped over? And almost to a person, everybody I talked to in Arizona said, "Oh, you got to take it to Jim Hartsock at, at Southwest Wildlife," and um, that just shows how good you've been at, at doing your trade and convincing your customers that uh, your work is about as good as it gets.
4: Well, well, that's nice to hear, and and you definitely planned it right, which a lot of people don't. Which I know we're going to get into in a little bit, but but you know a lot of people don't pre-plan. And they end up with an animal, and then they have no idea what to do with it. And usually it goes bad in the time they're, they're looking for somebody to take care of it for them.
1: Well, taking care of the, the hide and having it processed properly and, and doing everything you need to do, you know, there's a lot of times, and, and, and this is one thing that I want to tell, uh, uh, that really goes to show what our relationship is like. I've called you from... New Mexico and said, hey, Jim, I've got an elk in the back of my truck. I'm on my way through town. Can I drop off the hide and and the antlers? And you said, yeah, I'll meet you at the shop. At what time are you going to be here? So that's something that I think is probably extraordinary and and it really has worked well for me. But, you know, you have that kind of relationship with almost everybody I know that that does business with you. But before we get into that too much, I want to know more about you. Uh, Tell us where you grew up. How you got into taxidermy? You know what your connection with hunting is, and 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 how that all came about.
4: Okay, well, I originally uh, grew up in the Midwest in Nebraska, and and what happened, you know, how it, you know, I kind of got into the hunting and fishing was I, I fished all my life from being a real little kid, but really wasn't into hunting until I got into high school. So I was kind of a late, late later learned uh, hunter, and you know, some friends got me into it in high school and. And at that point, too, you know, I was like, oh, this, this whole industry is just something. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it just, you know, really intrigued me. And so I was uh, actually, when I was 14 years old, I had uh, uh, caught a uh, largemouth bass, and I still remember it was seven pounds, six and a half ounces. It was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have this mounted, so I, I went to dad and, and uh, I says, hey, Dad, can you, you know, let's take this to the taxidermist. So we did, and we got there, and the taxidermist says, okay, I need a deposit. And Dad looked down at me, and he says, well, give the man some money. And I was like, "I can I borrow some? He goes, no, you've got a job. You pay for it. And so I was like, okay, the taxidermist says, I'll give you a week. You can get some money down. Okay, so I went to went to work, made made a little bit of money. But at 14, it seemed like there was always something else to spend money on, and so the tax called me up later and he said, Hey, I need my deposit and I said, Oh, Dad, loan me some money. He goes, No, you got a job. You know, you're grown up now, you need to take care of things. And so to make the long story short, the the tax finally just threw the fish away because I never brought the, the deposit in. And after that I was, you know, pretty bummed about the whole thing. I thought, you know what? I can do that, so I found a correspondence course in the back of Boys Life magazine that said, Learn Taxidermy at Home, so I took that course, and the ironic thing is, is that course is still around today. People are still wasting their money on it, and it's the same course that I took that was the same course back in the late 20s and early 30s when it originally came out. So... That thing, that course actually just got me to, to looking and saying, "Hey, there has to be a better way." These, you can't even get this stuff that they're saying to use, and there has to be a better way. So I started, you know, learning as much as I possibly could. I found as many books as I could, and at that time it was an early time of videotapes videotape, so which I hope doesn't date me too much, but. Uh, there was a few videotapes available, so I'd watch those, and and I talked to anybody I could about it, and finally learned enough to where I was actually doing it. And so as I I finally moved down to Arizona in the eighties, and I was doing everything I possibly could do to pay the rent, and so I started doing taxidermy work for a couple of my friends down here, which that just built into you know a side business that. It came to a point where I was just doing more of that than my real job, and uh, I w- it, it was like okay, let's just uh, I, I got to quit my real job, and and I'd love to do taxidermy because it's such a passion of mine, and so that's when I did that uh, I jumped, you know, with it. And uh, at the time, my wife had a pretty good paying job, so we said, okay, hey, you know, I can make it, you know, by uh, on on her salary alone. And soon after that, uh, uh, she decided it was, you know, best, and I agreed with her that, that she quit her job and for, for problems at work. And so now all of a sudden, both of us were unemployed, so to speak, so I had to jump into it both feet. And so, and since then, I think that's the best thing that's ever happened to us because the business has taken off and... And, I mean, I've you know built the business up now, and we've got, uh, you know, five uh, people in the back, uh, including me. And then Annette, my wife, works up front here in the office and does the scheduling. And so the business has actually really grown and taken off.
1: That's really exciting, and I love to hear that uh, it's a family business. Uh, I know Cody, your son, works in the back. You've yep. got another son that's off, uh, you know, in college. I, I, you know, I think he's pre-med or, or something yep. like that. Yep, he's
4: actually so, uh, as an EMT right now, so.
1: That's that's terrific. And, and I love the fact that you can work with your wife. Uh, you know, not everybody can, but uh, I I have such a great relationship with my wife that the time that we spend together, you know, it's almost 24 hours a day because... Uh, when she's not golfing, like she is right now, she's yep. <laughs> usually in the office handling all the the, the bookwork. She's a, a CPA and a, a professional accountant, so yep, uh, enough, she's it's, it's really like
4: here. It's like when when uh, when I'm around, I'm the boss, and when she's not here, I'm the boss, and when she's here, she's the boss. <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs>
1: That's pretty much the way it goes. Uh... So this was kind of a passion, but born out of something that uh, you know happened that that showed you that, well, I really need to learn how to do this. I'm I'm really amazed that, that you said that, uh, you know, you're amazed that, that that course is still around, but I guess if it gave you the incentive to learn more and to figure out how to do it yourself, I think that it, it has a place, so it's a good thing. Uh, I th- You're an artist, it definitely is, and, and I neglected to use the word arts, and I think you incorporate that in, in your company name, right?
4: Right, it's Southwest Wildlife Taxidermy Art. And, now, and, and taxidermy has evolved over the years. I mean, you know, think about it when you were younger and the taxidermy was basically the deer head on the, the barroom wall. And nowadays it's evolved more into the artistic presentation of these pieces. And, you know, and, and that's how a lot of guys have got them into their houses now and the wives have agreed to it. When you, when you do a deer that's, that's doing something other than just looking straight forward, you can do a tight, Turn with a wall pedestal and do some habitat underneath it. You know, you put a little color in there, and the wives look at that and they say, "Oh, I love that. That's neat." And so that's another you know thing that's that's really happened with taxidermy is it's turned into more of the art form.
1: That's exactly what happened with uh, the bear that you did for me, the uh, Alaskan brown bear. Such a, a gorgeous mount, a full body mount, and it fit in. Uh, a place in my new house up north that was just perfect and my wife's the one that suggested it she said hey this is a perfect place for the bear that's where I want to put her so um y- yeah you know when you start to get the artistic part of it in there and make it more than just a dead animal you know on a, a pallet or something um yeah the women get involved and, and it becomes a part of the the house design
4: Yep. And and that's another thing, too. I've always, the way I kind of feel about it, too, is if you can present these animals in in an artistic way, so when the non-hunter comes to your house or the anti-hunter, if anybody has anti-hunting friends, they, you know, they can come and look and say, wow, that is very pretty. You know, it's a beautiful animal, and it, it is neat that you're respecting that animal that way. They may say inside, you know, I don't agree with you, but at least they're. I, I, it, it's baby steps. It's it's something to get these people to say, hey, you know, that's that is. I I, I, I kind of understand it now.
1: I really like the way you put that. Uh, it, it is a, a sign of respect for the animal. For me, every time and. I have a great memory about things that really aren't important, at least as far as my wife is concerned. I'm not really sure how I remember every guy I wrestled in high school. I just, (laughs) I I do, but every time I look at one of my mounts, it doesn't matter whether it's a a wall mount or a full body, I know exactly what I was doing at that time. I remember it all well, and it's just a way for me to extend the, the, the really cool factor of doing a hunt. Um, every time I look at him, and I think that 's one thing that that most of us uh, us hunters really appreciate about good taxidermy is that it it recreates that feeling in us every time we we look at him
4: right and that that that's so you 're not the only one like that i have a, a majority of my customers are like that they're they're to where i I look at that animal, and I still look at that today, even though it 's been you know fifteen years ago, but I kill him. I can remember the hunt I remember that. Something about that and it means something to me, and you know, there, there's a lot of trophies that we do too. That you know, I think I I I really enjoy doing them. Is, is like, in fact, we just had a uh, a uh, customer come in and we we did his son's uh, rainbow trout, and it was, and I didn't know this at first, but you know, he says, okay, it was it's his, I knew it was his first fish, but uh, he says, yeah, it's his first fish. So. I didn't have a photograph to work off of. It was a reproduction. And so we, we painted it up as a, as a rainbow trout. And, and as you know, most people know that rainbows come in all different spot patterns and colors and all that. But we kind of did it the typical rainbow fish. And uh, uh, so he gets it. He brings it to his son, and his son loves it. But then his son kind of went off by himself, and it was like, you know, he, he didn't like it. And turns out his son is autistic, and he... he, he viewed every, he knew every little spot on that fish of his because he had pictures of it. And so the customer brought it back and I, oh, I didn't know that. I wish I would have had a picture because then he brought me a picture in. And so then we repainted this fish and I used the picture as the guide basically and we got the spots as close as we could to every spot the right size and in the right place and and I guess his son you know has had it now for almost a week and he said he still talks about it every single day. And, I mean, that's the things that, you know, make me feel good about when we, when we do a trophy for somebody, and it, and it really means that much to them.
1: So you still do fish, huh?
4: Yep, we still do fish. We, we still do everything. We do uh, fish, birds, uh, and mammals. Uh, however, our, kind of the main thing we do is is shoulder mounts and life sizes and probably more international stuff now. But I still do do fish. We don't do as many as we used to do. But, uh, you know, it, it's still I still do them. And, and sometimes the birds and the fish, for me, I, I, it, I do them and I, I get off to the side and it's kind of a, it's a relaxing time. It kind of brings me back to when, you know, in a different time of my taxidermy career. And so it's, it's kind of fun to do them. Still, I'm glad I don't do a whole bunch because <laughs> we do really enjoy the, the international and the, and the mammals.
1: When you first started, uh, did you kind of focus on fish? I mean, uh, being in the Midwest when you were a kid and you were just trying to learn this—is was that what came your way most often?
4: That yes, it was mainly because that was, and I could also go out and catch fish easily and and work on them. And you know, all my friends fish, so it was easier. It was there. There was a lot more. The abundance of the fish was greater. You know, and. Of course, you know everybody only gets one deer a year, so it was it takes a while, you know, to build that up to where you're doing a bunch of deer, and so so yeah. When I started, it was kind of birds and fish, and and even when I started, it was a lot of pigeons and anything else you could shoot, you know. Uh.
1: Uh, that's that's really cool. Uh, let's talk about taxidermy. Most people, even hunters, don't really understand what it takes to get the deer that they just harvested um and caped and the horns into say just a shoulder mount kind of go through the process of what it is let our listeners know what it is that they need to know when they're anticipating having a mount done and talk about what is required from you uh, in order to get the job done properly
4: Okay, you know a lot of people. You're right. Very few people know what it actually takes to to do the mount. I guess I guess I'll kind of start at the at the field care part and then work through the whole taxidermy process of a shoulder mount. Uh, but like like the field care, uh, you know, and and I know it's an exciting time because I've been on a lot of hunts too. But when you get your deer down, it's you're excited and you've got now it's now the work begins. You've got a whole carcass to take care of. You have got a head to take care of. And you know, so so everything has to be relatively quick. So that's where planning, you know, takes takes a big load off. If you've already planned, you've already visited the taxidermist and, and you've, you know, figured all that out, you know what he wants. And and so then, you know, the field care is is the the big thing is to keep in mind is that your your cape and your then the head is 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 just as 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 raw as the the meat is. So take care of your head like you would your meat. So don't just throw it out under a bush and say I'll come back to it tomorrow because I've got all my carcass to take care of and my meat to take care of. That is a a, a perishable item. You need to take care of that. So and and with that being said, it's basically take care of it like your meat is. Uh, now the 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 problem in in a poor field care is is called slippage and that's where the the hair actually slips off of the skin and that's in a nutshell it's basically the the degrading or the the rotting of the layer of the skin and and what causes slippage there's three things that cause slippage it's bacteria moisture and heat if you take away any one of those three things you you basically prolong the life of that raw skin so the bacteria that's on the skin that causes the start of this this rot, you can't get that off. There's nothing you can do there. So you have to uh, concentrate on either the moisture and the heat. So either put it in a cooler and put ice on it, and that keeps it cold. You can freeze it. You can, you know, just keep it cold. That will extend the life. Or you, you get the moisture out, and that's what we do when we when we salt things. And when people talk about, you know, salting hides, you're sucking the moisture out of there so the bacteria doesn't have the moisture in order to grow. So, you know, the, the the field care then is to, you know, keep it, you know, as dry as possible and as cold as possible and then get it to the taxidermist as quick as possible. You know, now that all kind of ranges in, in time. I mean, some things may be, you know, one or two days. Other things may be three or four days. Uh, but, you know, when, when you get the animal down, you want to, you know, wipe off as much blood as you can. Uh, and, but but don't, Rinse it because, once again, you're adding water back to it. Uh, You know, make your cuts as straight as possible. And typically, you know, on a shoulder mount, uh, you'd make a cut down the back of the neck, down right down the center line to another cut that's been made around the animal, halfway between the front legs and the back legs. Then, if you can hang the animal up, peel all of that forward to the base of the head. When you get to the arms, you kind of pull those off like socks and, and you know, cut at the knee, cut a uh, ring around the, the knee, and so then it should all come off. If you, if you can't get it off because of the leg, you can make a cut up the back of the leg and then uh, back to the line that you've cut around the, the body. That makes things a lot easier for big animals. And so you, you take that off then cut the head off at the atlas joint. So now what you have is you've got the, the neck skin and the shoulder skin hanging there on the head, and lay that off to the side in the shade someplace let it cool down uh cool to the touch once it's cool you can fold the the skin to skin the flesh to flesh and then throw it in a cooler put it in a plastic bag and and pack ice around it you don't want to put it in a uh, in a plastic bag when it's too warm and seal it up because you're going to Hold that heat in, which then and the moisture in there is going to create the slippage so you're basically you know taking care of it like you would you know meat in there, but you know you don't you don't want to get it uh get it wet you know soaking wet, but if it has to be wet you know it sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but if if it has to get wet as long as it's real ice cold uh that's fine too you can always drip dry drain the the water off of it, but you know tran- you know
1: Go ahead, hey, hey Jim. I want I want to ask you. Um, it's okay to freeze it. Because, you know, in in some parts of the country, you're hunting late November, uh, you know, there's snow on the ground. You you get them on the first day of a five-day hunt and you're hunting with other people. They hang the meat in the tree. That's good. But you can actually lay out the, you know, go go through all the steps you just gave us, fold it up, and then leave it out. And if it freezes, it's fine. As a matter of fact, that actually makes it better to transport because you know that there's less chance that that's going to get to a point where it's going to be a
3: problem.
4: Correct. You can definitely do that, and that's one way to, to prolong those hunts. But now, don't think that since it's freezing, you can leave the hide on the animal, because that, of course, is going to—you know—I've I've seen studies of that where where they've taken uh, uh, elk and not skinned an elk, and the inner meat, you know, is still eighty degrees after freezing solid on the outside, you know. So, so you can still ruin the meat and ruin the hide by leaving it. You still have to skin it off that animal. And get it to where you can freeze it you know and and get it get it frozen and then you know that way you can stay for the rest of the hunt you don't have to run off and worry about it uh,
1: hey jim now, we're we're getting a little short of time we got about three minutes left and, and we haven't talked about your website so let's make sure our listeners have your wed- website address so they can go check out your work
4: okay it's uh, swwildlife.com so there's two w's in there swwildlife we're also on instagram and and uh facebook uh you know uh And Instagram is SWWildlife underscore taxidermy. And uh, uh, Facebook is uh, Southwest Wildlife Taxidermy Art.
1: One thing I want to make clear is that you work with customers all over the world. They don't have to be Arizona uh, residents in order to work with you. You'll send them tags that they'll put on their um, trophies wherever they're hunting. For instance, when I went to Mozambique, you, you... gave me tags that I tagged all of my animals with when they they go through a process in that country that takes you about three months. There's something else that I wanted to talk about. If anybody knows about having customers complain about long lead times, it's me. But the fact that your lead times are so long has a lot to do with stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with what you do. I know that it took about three months from the time that that I... Um, ended my hunt in Mozambique before they imported the trophies to you uh, through an importer, and then you send out all of the capes to have them tanned, and that's usually about a three-month process. Is that yeah, right?
4: Three to four months uh, for the tanning. And, okay,
1: you know, well, I, I, I just wanted to cover that because it can be, you know, as much as nine months to a year from the time... You get an animal until you get it back to the customer, but only about six months of that it really is the time that it takes you to do the work.
4: Yeah, it's it's uh uh and and that's where you know most taxidermists that are uh are are busy and and you know have a good clientele and a good following. You know, you're talking a year turnaround time, and it's, there's just nothing you can do about that. And you know, for us, it, it's really hard for me to. To, you can't just hire someone off the street to do this work. You have to find an artistic person that that knows taxidermy and, and knows what they're doing before you turn somebody's you know hunt of a lifetime over to them. And so <laughs> it's. You just can't grab somebody.
1: You know, I hate to interrupt you, but we are out of time. I'm up against a hard stop. So I just wanted to thank you a lot for being on the show. Really informative. We'll have you back when we can talk a little bit more about the details and the artistry of what you do. Um, I want to thank you uh, for all the work that you've done for me over the years. It's all terrific. You know how much I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for being on the show.
4: All right. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, and I'd like to thank our listeners for spending their very valuable time with us. Remember, we'll be here next week on Voice of America Sports sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Get out and enjoy the great country this weekend. Goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.